0: Welcome back to the Friends and Neighbors Podcast. I'm Benjamin Wagner, and this week, Headlines Network founder and co-director, Hannah Storm. As founder and co-director of Headlines Network, Hannah is at the forefront of creating connections and driving conversations towards improving journalists' mental health. Hannah co-authored the first study into moral injury and the media for Reuters Institute and has written extensively at the intersection of gender, mental health, physical, and online safety. Her Behind the Headlines podcast features seasoned journalists like my friend, longtime RTE foreign correspondent Mark Little, Sky News' Stuart Ramsey, and the BBC's Mariana Spring, sharing their experiences, challenges, and how they've managed their mental health. Hannah is, above all, as Fred Rogers would say, a helper. Someone, as I witnessed last week, at a workshop she convened at the Committee to Protect Journalists in New York City, on the front lines of assuring that the fourth estate, the men and women reporting from conflict zones and computers around the world, is well enough to protect nothing less essential than truth and democracy. While our paths likely crossed during my tenure as Global Programs Lead for the Facebook Journalism Project, Hannah and I had never met. Still, I reached out because wellness is a space in which I hope to be a helper too. We spoke from her home north of London just prior to her stateside visit about her early career at the BBC, Reuters, and Channel 4, her experience with journalists around the world, and her own healing journey. In sharing her story, Hannah empowers us all to share ours, which is right where we begin.
1: In March, I gave an address to the Society of Editors, which is in the UK, and it's the people who run the big kind of news organizations. And I was invited to give an address there, and I was talking about this idea of how important it is to invest. In conversations around mental health. But in order to do that, I decided to share my own story. And I talked about my own journey through mental health. I talked about my own experiences of gendered violence, of sexual assault, and, you know, noting that most of the media industry is predominantly run by men. And the Society of Editors is kind of like, there are far fewer women there than there were men. And afterwards, a handful of women came up to me and said, You know, thank you for sharing your story. I've also been sexually assaulted. And actually, it makes me feel so much more heard, even though they didn't want to publicly share their story, and so much less alone hearing that from you and hearing it in a way that is kind of, you know, articulate and compassionate, and compassionate not only to other people, but to myself as well. So I think that was a really powerful moment.
0: And you wrote a piece in Pointer in July of 2020. And you said, at the end of the last year, I was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder as a result of multiple traumatic experiences in my journalism career. What led to that moment, particularly the public part of it? I only said something out loud maybe a year ago, and I even just today posted something in my newsletter that was much clearer than I've ever been. And I find each time I have to kind of almost steel myself and remind myself of you know, the sort of journey to the moment and what the value is.
1: I think you make a really important point about the journey. And I think you also make a really important point about each time, because I think for me, each time it unpacks a little bit more and each time mm-hmm. I feel perhaps able to speak about different parts of it. But I guess yeah. the kind of thing that kind of really led me to that moment, actually what goes back a few years previously I had what I can only describe as kind of like complete crash. I think it was the kind of April after all the Me Too allegations came out in the October beforehand. And I'd been at a kind of journalism festival in Italy, and I'd been moderating conversations around mental health, around moral injury and reports I'd written, and also around um, this idea of Me Too in the media but Me Too actually happening within our newsrooms. And we still need to do a lot of work within our own newsrooms to help people feel much safer from the Mm -hmm. sexual violence perspective. But I was kind of thinking about things and I'm thinking, this is kind of weird. I've never spoken openly about the sexual assaults that I'd experienced, the sexual harassments I'd experienced. And and so I was kind of processing that. And then in the same time, that same event, I went out for dinner with people and You know, one of the coping mechanisms I think we have, which is perhaps unhealthy, is kind of drinking too much alcohol, comparing stories. We do this kind of, you know, it's almost like this weird poker, you know, game that we play with each other, Mm, kind of, you know, mm -hmm. I see this, raise you this, see this, raise you that. And it's all around black humor and it's this kind of management style, but it wasn't really a management style for me because actually the next morning I woke up and I was just in bits. A lot of my trauma comes from an earthquake. I was in an earthquake zone in Italy but not in the earthquake zone mm. where I experienced the trauma, that kind of a collapse happened, a collapse ensued. But I like to feel like it was a kind of a cleverly masked collapse because actually I didn't tell anybody. I tried to hold it together. I tried to wear my superhero cape for, for a couple more years. But in the intervening period, I had done some work with Pointer and they invited me to speak about my experience with Me Too. So that was the first step. I wrote about that. And then the second step was a couple of years later when I felt like I could finally go to seek help. I knew that I had PTSD. I knew it already because I'd been working in journalism safety and I'd seen many folks falling by the wayside and coping ugly, as some people call it. So I knew I had it, but I didn't get the help. I didn't get the help and therefore I didn't get the diagnosis. And I'm not even entirely sure that diagnoses are always helpful, to be honest, but Once I'd got that, we were like four months into COVID by then, weren't we? So I'd done a lot of thinking and I'd done a lot of writing and I'd been in therapy and I'd been reliving my experiences and I'd worked with my therapist and said, I'd written an entire 60,000 word memoir, for goodness sake. And I was at the stage where I was like, okay, I'm ready. I'm ready now because all of my 20 years previous experience, all of the journalism I'd done, all of the facilitating conversations I'd done, all of the trying to kind of hold truth to power, collided in this moment where I was like, I can share my story for good. It's not going to help everybody, but it was going to help me as well. And as it transpired, it did help some people.
0: It certainly helped me. It's interesting to me that as a metaphor, earthquake is relevant to you. I'm a songwriter and have been writing songs for 30 years and earthquakes are a frequent metaphor because the ground moves, you know, like nothing's stable, right? And Mm -hmm. so... It really makes sense now that I understand trauma a little bit, the idea of safety or groundedness.
1: So I write both fiction and I write creative nonfiction. It's part of my kind of recovery, if you like. And I've written a lot about earthquakes or I've written stories with titles such as fault lines or aftershocks and things like mm-hmm. that. And I think that for me, my trauma has been very much like that. There have been primary traumas and there's been other traumas related. And, and so the, the interconnectedness, but that sense that you mentioned there of this idea of the ground that you feel is your sense of stability, your anchor, your tether being pulled from underneath your feet and then worrying forevermore that, oh my goodness, what's going to happen? And then having to build that recovery and that resilience in terms of kind of helping you recognize actually it is stable. It is okay. Yeah, That's really important.
0: I was also struck that you noted COVID's role, if you will, in catalyzing your public sharing of your story. And for me, it was a massive catalyst. And best as I can tell, it's been thus for many, many, many people. In fact, I use it to ground a lot of what I talk about because I feel like everyone can agree on it without carrying the same shame that they tend to carry with their other experiences that are difficult, right? Mm -hmm. Their other grief.
1: I'm writing a book on mental health and journalism and it's a practical guide and one of the questions I ask people is how conversations around mental health have changed and covid comes up a, a huge amount covid for me I was diagnosed just before covid and that was interesting because mm. um in the in the UK where i'm based there's a long waiting list for a mental health provision and so i i didn't get my therapy i met my therapist once in person in, in real life in a virtual pre covid but i didn't ever have Therapy until the pandemic had started. So, all of my therapy was remote across the screen, like we're talking now. Mm-hmm. And so, that brought a completely different dimension. For me, I kind of worked through this remote therapy. And because I had two children who potentially could hear my story and I didn't want them mm-hmm. to, it wasn't fair. I wrote it down. And in writing it down, I processed and relived experiences and kind of put those weird jigsaw pieces back together because I didn't necessarily know which order they'd rooms. Like I chucked the jigsaw on the floor with post-traumatic stress yeah. disorder. And then I was like turning the jigsaw pieces over. And so it kind of helped me ascertain what was valuable to me, but also helped me to kind of process through the help of the therapist, what could I bring from my past? What was my mission? What could I use for my future? And what drove me to kind of bring about something good from the whole situation?
0: As I understand from your writing, you were diagnosed like me with CPTSD, how do you differentiate between the two diagnoses? I mean, again, they're intertwined and connected, but how do you think of them as different from an experiential standpoint?
1: I had this moment a few weeks ago where I was speaking with some journalists and we were like, have you ever met a journalist who's got PTSD? And everyone was like, yeah, loads of journalists who's got PTSD. And we were like, no, have you ever met a journalist who's got Simple as opposed to complex PTSD. We were all like, no, there are so many traumas that are interwoven and intertwined, right? So, whether it's PTSD or complex PTSD, I think the C bit for me means that, you know, when you like knot something up and it gets all knotted and you have to kind of like, it takes forever, you either have to cut it or you have to be really patient and unraveling a knot. That to me is complex PTSD. It's all of these different kind of skeins of experience. And some of the traumas that you've had are connected, right? Some of the decisions I made, which ended up finding me in difficult situations, came as a result of the injuries I'd experienced in previous traumas. So for me, it's all connected. For instance, if I go into a therapy session and they're like, let's talk about X, I'm like, well... I can't really talk about X unless I talk about all the other letters in the alphabet before X, right? And so I think that it's misunderstood is what I'd say, but also in journalism terms, I think that it's not necessarily helpful to say to somebody, oh, you've got PTSD, you've got complex PTSD. It's like, wow, you've been through a lot. You've been through a lot, you know? Yeah, you and I, Ben, we've been through a lot, right? (laughs)
0: So, yeah. I've often said to people that my own experiences feel like tangled spaghetti. And -hmm. until you use that metaphor of a knot of twine, I hadn't thought of those two things as connected, but it always Mm -hmm. felt like kind of a, very difficult to get at the center or to untangle a whole set of causalities Mm -hmm. and cause and effect to your point. My experience is a series of chronic traumas from the age of zero to 18. And then I rapidly move into the world and basically put myself in high stress situations that keep me at a heightened state, but ultimately repeat said pattern and in fact, amplify and augment it with all kinds of, you know, the, the, the news cycle and the idea that something's going to break and I'm going to have to run to the computer or into the field to deal with it, et cetera. just that sort of thing, living in New York, then global travel. So there's the sense of repetition, but also interconnectedness
1: for me that it helps to kind of think about that interconnectedness and i think your point about cause and effect and causality is really interesting because i think that you know mine is not childhood trauma that i've experienced i had a very happy childhood but mine is trauma that probably began in my teenage years predominantly because of gendered violence against me and then kind of led to other things that went on for probably 15 20 years I was reading Fergal Keane's book recently, the BBC correspondent, The Madness, and he talks about his childhood trauma and the ancestral trauma in Ireland and how it makes for him to be constantly hyper aroused and kind of constantly kind of hyper vigilant. Yeah. I think he used the term. And he thinks that, you know, that can make for good journalists, too. But it was also kind of us being aware of ourselves of kind of what our past traumas have brought to our state of mind and our ability to to do things.
0: 100%. And to be clear, you're talking about like war zone coverage, right? You're talking about fires and murders. And if you're a journalist on a street beat like that or an international beat like that, it could be all that all the time.
1: Yeah. In fact, I was just in a conversation a little bit earlier on today with some folks and we were talking about, Now I was talking about the work I used to do around journalism safety and the more I think about it, the more I think that actually we have this traditional notion of a hostile environment. And if you think about a hostile environment, you might think about some, you know, veteran journalist with his kind of flak jacket or his kind of, you know, certain type of type of persona. And you think about him going into conflicts or war zone, but I think it's more helpful to kind of reframe it in terms of hostile environments can mean very different things for different people. Mm -hmm. So what is a hostile environment for me, Ben, It's probably not a hostile environment for you, probably because of my gender in some instances, what might be a hostile environment for you because of things you've experienced in your past. It's probably not a hostile environment for me. So I think that, yes, we're talking about shootings and we're talking about court reporting and we're talking about all kinds of grim stuff as well as war zones. But I think what's really helpful to kind of say is that I think we need to reframe it differently to kind of look at things in terms of what does a hostile environment mean for a different person? Um, you know, and also I think what you were saying there is it's probably very different for an MTV person to go and cover, go to Bandace, because they probably haven't got the tools and the training and the background and support that actually can be protective for you. So I think that's a point. And then the final point I'd make on trauma and journalism at the moment is that one of the things I'm very concerned about at the moment is this idea of secondary trauma. Mm -hmm. So when we're exposed to other people's trauma, be that on screen, be that by interviewing survivors, be that being exposed to court reports or research, that can take a toll on us too. And that I think has been massively underestimated, the, the toll that that can take, particularly when we're isolated, if we're working by ourselves or remotely or whatever.
0: So let's back up a tad for a minute. Give me a sense of your earliest memories.
1: I don't have significantly large memories from childhood, which I think, you know, PTSD does weird things with your brain. But yeah, I was born yeah. in Liverpool, in England, in the late 70s. And I was thinking before about how significant that is. So for me, you know, Liverpool is is synonymous with a few things. It's synonymous with um, music. It's synonymous with football or soccer. It's synonymous with kind of quite hardworking folk who, you know, are part Irish, a lot of them, and, you know, it got bombed to pieces in in the Second World War. So there's kind of, it's that grafting stuff, but it's also synonymous with really friendly, kind of very talkative people. So unpacking that a little bit, you know, some of my earliest memories are around music. Some of my earliest memories are around skipping to school as a five-year-old and dancing to, with my dad to Billy Joel, Uptown Girl, which does show my age. Oh, and, yeah. you know, and uh, Culture Club, Karma Chameleon and things like that. I love that about the memories. Auditory memories have always been really important for me. So um, the hearing um, and also that has impacted my, trauma has impacted my um, relationship with sound as well. But also I think a couple of other things, you know, football, um, as you mentioned, soccer. I had a brother who was a year younger than me always playing football, the kind of family rivalries in, in Liverpool around who supports Liverpool, who supports Everton. Um, and then kind of moving on at the age of nearly seven to to move to a place in England it called Yorkshire, which is on the other side of England, so the northeast, and kind of, you know, very much a kind of very happy, quite bucolic, I suppose, kind of um, upbringing where we'd go into the backyard and we'd pick raspberries in this immense garden we had. And, you know, we'd complain to our mother that we had too many raspberries on our cereal and that kind of stuff. So it was, it was happy. And then I think one final point I'd mention about childhood is when I was writing the memoir, I started thinking about what were the kind of key moments beyond my family that I could remember from childhood. And there were some really significant news moments that I remember from the kind of early 80s to the mid 80s there was the miners strike in the UK which was really politically kind of important there were various tragedies like um there was a, a boat sinking in the channel um Herald of Free Enterprise there was the assassination of um Indira Gandhi so things like that kind of made me aware of the world around me and so there's the kind of family memories which were all happy and then there's the kind of overriding other memories, which are more problematic, but I, I kind of desired to understand and unpack, I think.
0: We're asked, what are you going to do? What are you going to be? When did you get a sense of that? And how did that come into focus for you?
1: I think from the age of eight or nine, I wanted to be a journalist. And so that makes it difficult, right? Because I am a perfectionist. I am a overachiever. I put a lot of pressure on myself. And so kind of my relationship with my mental health has been problematic, in that way too, because I don't think I've ever really spoken about this openly, but I achieved so much by the age of 30 that actually I felt like I didn't have anywhere else to go. Right. So, Mm -hmm. so I kind of like did really well, really well, really well. So I put so much pressure on myself as well that kind of by the age of 30, I was like, I guess in retrospect, the only way is down. Right. But forever, I knew forever. And from the age of 14, I was doing work experience in newspapers. So every summer break, every Christmas break, I was like the person knocking on the door, going, Please, can I do some work experience? And it was amazing. And I never got put off.
0: Oftentimes, someone who's experienced trauma tells their story as a coping mechanism. Mm -hmm. And I realized just 10 days ago that I've been telling stories my whole life. I wonder if that has any resonance with you. It sounds like your timelines are a little different than mine. I love the skipping to school visual, you know, (laughs) actual youth and adolescence.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, I've always been a writer. So, you know, as well as being a journalist, I wanted to be a famous writer, but I mean, I think everybody I've ever met in journalism wants to be a famous writer as well. I definitely think that as I became older, it did become a coping mechanism for me. So kind of trying to figure it out through writing and I got better at writing because of that. But, you know, I still wrote little stories at the age of seven and eight about Hector the Hedgehog and things like that. And so, yeah, In a slightly different way, I think, but it's always been there. And then I think when it came to being able to share my story, I think having had that toolkit already forever to reach back into, which was like a bit of a kind of like, well, I know how this works. I know how to write stories. I'm just going to turn the pen back on myself to write those stories.
0: Reuters, BBC, Channel 4, to your point, you were ambitious and successful. What were those early years like? And how did you experience personally and witness in others acute and or chronic stress? Like what were you seeing around you? How did you learn to cope and manage that stuff? So
1: I was a graduate trainee at Reuters in 1999 and I think there were 12 of us. I was lucky to get a position there, but very, very early on I saw signs that, and I wrote about this in one of the pointed pieces, but I saw signs of this kind of conditioning to behave in a Mm -hmm. certain way It was a heavy, heavy reliance on the drunken culture, on the alcohol culture. So you would always, every single time you, every day, pretty much you'd go to to the pub and have a, oh, just come for one. And it's never just one, is it? So so there was that. I worked for a Times newspaper and I think my interview was a drinking session, me getting a job because I could hold my alcohol, which is not a good thing to kind of do. (laughs) And then I remember very early on my first week, I think there, is one of the editors just absolutely lost it and just started yelling, Mm. absolutely yelling. And I found myself in the toilet crying. And I'm like, this is just weird. So he was a complete and utter bully, but never got Mm. reprimanded. There's this toxic culture that is drinking too much. It's having inappropriate relationships with people, abuses of power in newsrooms. It's not looking after ourselves in terms of like not getting enough sleep. I remember a colleague of mine I lived in Paris for a year for Reuters um, which was amazing but I remember a colleague of mine we went out one night and this colleague basically just pulled an all-nighter and the next morning Mm. this colleague was sleeping in the toilet and then went to their desk Mm. and I'm like wow okay and this was just people just did not even blink an eye at this and so I mean that said the camaraderie was fantastic Mm -hmm. you know the there, there's something really powerful about the peer networks that we have in journalism. It's that kind of fine line, isn't it? And I think the other thing I'd say is that I saw a lot of relationships fall apart. Um, a lot of extramarital affairs taking place behaviors where we kind of, we get very close to people very quickly because we feel like we're the only people in the world to understand each other's language. And I think that we gel, but perhaps not necessarily in a, a healthy way. There was a lot in there, really. And, and, you know, partly was torn between this idea of needing to be one of the lads. So one of the boys kind of doing stuff where, oh, come on, Hannah, let's go to the lap dancing club, which was like, really? But also at the same time, kind of being somebody who was kind of in my early 20s, who was relatively young, relatively attractive. And therefore, people would abuse their power against me. And because they were more powerful than me and more senior than me, you're stuck. You just don't know how to behave. And you haven't got any kind of female role models in my journalism career who were like, this is bollocks, you know, saying, saying that, no, honey, you don't need to accept that.
0: You remind me that in essence, my job interview for my first job in New York at Rolling Stone was at the White Horse Tavern where the guy I was talking to bragged that Dylan Thomas drank himself to death. I mean, you know, that's why everyone goes to the White Horse when you're in New York.
1: There are some good things and some bad things. And it's really important to recognize both, I think
0: if you can activate that tribe to open up in a way that might be more constructive and productive and introduce some healthier coping mechanisms.
1: But you'll always get the naysayers. You're always going to get people going, this is bollocks what you're talking about. You know, it's it's like never affected me. Why should I talk about my trauma? You know, it, Because I'm not trauma. You know, so you're always going to get the naysayers.
0: Yeah, well, let's spend a second on the naysayers. I was going to ask you how you frame the conversation, whether you're talking about your work in International News Safety Institute or in the Headlines Network that you founded recently. How do you frame the conversations to make it sort of palatable or relatable, or how do you frame and manage through that stuff?
1: It's a really great question. I think that I want us to have a great journalism industry. I want us to do great groundbreaking agenda setting, brilliant journalism that holds people to account. And so I think the way I've tried to frame it is that you know we can only do that we can only really do that if we support the folks who do the journalism that actually journalists are journalism's most precious resource so we need to ensure that people are well and that means the two sides of the coin are interconnected physical well-being and mental emotional well-being are interconnected we all have it you can't deny that you have got mental health you've got mental health that like you've got physical health we may choose to talk about one more than the other, we may choose to see one in a different way from the other. So I think that it's those two things. We want great journalism. How do we have great journalism? We have great journalists. In order to frame it, that's how I do it. But I would also say that actually, I try to find the allies. So I try to find the people who Mm. get it. And they will be the leaders of news organizations who recognize and unfortunately, it's a lot of the time, it's the leaders of organizations who have been themselves hurt or have had something happen to them so personally that they couldn't ignore it. So they've lost somebody very close to them. They've, you know, something's happened. So they get it. They get that leadership leads from the top. And that vulnerability is not a sign of weakness. That actually an admission of vulnerability is a sign of strength. And it can make you a better journalist. And actually, you know, being able to share stories, as we all do, one of the things that makes, when you are for are a good journalist, one of the things that makes you a good journalist is empathy and connection. And it's about mm-hmm. turning those skills that make us good journalists back on ourselves mm-hmm. and just kind of being kind, being compassionate and checking yeah. in with folks. You still get people who are like, she's talking bollocks. I mean, there were, you're yeah. still always going to get people who are like, nah, you can have your uh, airy, fairy, fluffy stuff if you want, but actually I ain't going to buy it. But honestly, I think a lot of those people are, they're the people I worry about most, to be honest, because they're the, probably yeah. the people who are the most disassociating from the trauma yeah. or the experiences they've been in. Journalists are resilient. But as Anthony Feinstein, who's a great buddy of mine, who does a lot of research in this space, says, you know, that doesn't mean we're immune. Mm. We don't all have to be messed up. We're not all messed up. We don't all have to be traumatized. Actually, I think our body reacts in a certain way to traumas we experience, and but it's an important point to make that we're not all screwed up.
0: You launched the Headlines Network in 2021. You're a founder and co-director. Will you describe the work that you guys do?
1: So the Headlines Network was set up because we realized we wanted to create a space where people felt able to talk if they wanted to, and also to promote more open conversations about mental health and journalism. And the more we talked with people, the more we realized that there were certain resources that they would benefit from we got um support from the Google news and news initiative which allowed us to create a set of resources multimedia resources so video resources and and um text tip sheets around different issues to do with we've done supporting your colleagues managing our mental health one on vicarious trauma one on re- preparing to cover traumatic breaking news we've got some more coming up and we do workshops as well with managers because i think a lot of the time we hear from managers that they've never had that opportunity to, mm-hmm. to talk, to practice, to, you know, have conversations with peers. That's how headlines came about. I wanted to kind of do something really practical and John Crowley and I kept meeting on these pandemic panels and like talking, talking, talking. And it was like, we've got to go beyond the talking to action. And I'd done a lot of kind of, again, the skills that I'd brought from the journalism safety work I'd brought into this. And um, the podcast was, um, I, uh, did work as a radio journalist in the past and just love radio, love audio as I mentioned already. And um, I thought, wouldn't it be cool to get like famous journalists to talk a bit about the stories that they've covered, but actually do it from the kind of the angle of how those stories impacted them? What do they remember about them? And also talk about their own coping mechanisms. So we have did that. It's called Behind the Headlines with Headlines Network. We've had some amazing people on there. uh, Lise Doucette from the BBC, Clive Myrie, um, Fergal Keane, Alex Crawford from Sky News, Gina Chua from Semaphore it's a brilliant educational tool and it's such fun and it's such yeah. a privilege. It's not always fun, obviously, to hear about people's trauma, but it's such a privilege to to share these stories with people and to just have the bent. Nobody's turned us down yet, which is amazing.
0: How would you advise or what kind of guidance or feedback would you give somebody who's, maybe they're recognizing something in listening to this or they're in the second or third step of their healing journey? Like, you know, what would be a, a tip or a takeaway or guidance you'd share with them?
1: Your experience is valid. You're not alone. It can feel very lonely, but you're not alone. If you feel comfortable at the moment to reach out to somebody you trust, I would strongly encourage you to do that. Cat can be really hard to do, but I think it really can help. I think that you should never necessarily feel compelled to talk, but it really does make a difference. And then find the other things that make your heart sing find the things that kind of you know keep you going for me it's running and it's writing uh, for you it sounds like it's making music find something beyond the day job that makes your heart sing and hold on to that and also i think finally recognize that we will have dark days there'll be dark days you know sometimes you can't see the sun behind the cloud but the sun does come out and i think it's really important in those moments to kind of realize that recovery isn't linear and mental health It's a bit like John Crowley, my Headlines colleague. It's a bit like the weather, he says. You know, one day we'll have fine weather and the next day perhaps we won't have such fine weather. So I think that things will get better, but it is okay to have dark days as well.
0: The Friends and Neighbors podcast is an Essential Industries production in association with Wagner Brothers. Please rate and review the podcast on your favorite platform. Not only does it help us to improve the show, but it also helps other people discover and join our neighborhood. Please visit friendsandneighborsshow.com to listen to previous episodes or subscribe to our newsletter. We promise not to spam you, but we will deliver fresh and meaningful news and information straight to your inbox every week. And I'd love to hear from you directly. Drop me an email at benjaminbwagner at gmail.com. Until next time, it's a good feeling to know we're lifelong friends.